This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing. Now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. How do you feel great on vacation? Like really good? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sand beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll immerse yourself in natural wonder and find your center on an island where things move at your speed. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. And then they go see a functional medicine doctor who's, they paid cash, by the way, but spent an hour with them and actually helped them with lifestyle, made them not feel so crappy. And all of a sudden, it's like, yeah, this functional medicine doctor helped me. No, lifestyle medicine is absolutely evidence-based. Diet nutrition ends up being a gateway drug for a lot of functional medicine practitioners because they say something reasonable about diet and address it and gain a lot of trust with the patients. And then doesn't matter whether what they say is evidence-based or not, it then creates that trust, which allows them to sell a lot of tests and supplements and other things that aren't evidence-backed. Welcome to Wellness, Fact versus Fiction. I'm Dr. Danielle Bellardo, and I'm a cardiologist who loves evidence-based medicine and nutrition science. But as a millennial, I've watched endless wellness fads take over social media. It's my mission to get to the bottom of things by bringing on the top expert physicians and scientists to help us determine what is fact versus fiction when it comes to your health. It's time to leave the pseudoscience behind and become empowered when it comes to our wellness. Hi, everyone. We are back with what I expect to be a comedic episode today because we have the one and only Kevin Klatt and Spencer Nadalski on today. Kevin Klatt is a registered dietitian and PhD nutrition scientist who you all probably know from my Instagram. Spencer Nadalski is a family medicine physician who is also board certified in lipids and obesity medicine and recently started Lift RX program. And they are both here today to discuss one of our favorite topics, one that generally gets everyone pretty heated, which is functional medicine and functional nutrition. Hey guys. What's up? Hey. I don't know how comedic it will be. You told us to tone it down. <laughs> I, I did. I did. I told them I didn't want our editors to have to go to too much work and to keep it, <laughs> keep it professional here. Okay. We're doctors, right? Yeah, All right. Let's start with some definitions, guys. So anyone that obviously follows me on Instagram knows that we we talk about this a lot, but the world of social media has created a lot of movement in these different um, alternative spaces of medicine, nutrition, and it really is hard to keep it all straight. So there's all different kinds of alternative medicine. So if we could start with, you guys want to just go into defining what functional medicine is versus functional nutrition and all of this stuff. Yeah, I mean, I I have the IFM, the Institute of Functional Medicine uh, website up because it's a kind of a long definition. But the, the short definition is functional medicine determines how and why illness occurs and restores health by addressing the root causes of disease for each individual. And it has a longer paragraph basically going into understanding each patient's genetics and biochemistry and lifestyle factors and basically finding the root cause. That's that's the whole premise, which on the surface, doesn't sound bad at all, right? Right. Yeah, I think that's what a lot of these things, you read the definitions, they sound extremely reasonable from a philosophical standpoint. But then it also begs the question, I think we read them of like, okay, well, how is that different than any conventionally trained person who's just a a good, caring practitioner and empathetic? Yeah, Danielle, remember you made a post about this on Instagram and and I came on and kind of of explained we, we have our... American uh, Board of Medical Specialties, and nowhere to be found is functional medicine. Correct. For anybody listening, we have these standardization of how we have these medical specialties. Danielle, Dr. Bellardo did 
internal medicine, then which is a medical specialty, then subspecialized into cardiology. And you can even subspecialize further. You could do cardiology heart failure. You could do cardiology interventional. You could do a thousand. Very standardized. Mm -hmm. I started off doing family medicine and actually my obesity and lipids aren't even, those aren't even recognized by the American Board of, of Specialties just yet. They're trying to. Like for me, we have to do actual, you do three years of internal medicine training yep. and then take your boards in internal medicine. You do three years of cardiology training and right. take your boards in cardiology. You're not just getting a certificate. So it's very standardized. Uh, same thing. My, you know, my brother did endocrine, internal medicine, had to do a fellowship in endocrinology. My wife did pediatrics, then now and then three years of neonatology, for so on and so forth. We have surgery, all these different things, but very standardized. Functional medicine does not have this whatsoever. There are multiple institutes out there that sell their own thing. I know Chris Presser, an acupuncturist, has his own program and has his own style of it. We have the Institute of Functional Medicine, and there are multiple other people that aren't physicians calling themselves functional medicine doctors. And this is great. This is a great point. Um, and I think really important to hammer home. So if everyone knows, I really do love, um, I'm a major proponent of guidelines. And as you'll understand, there are no guidelines for functional medicine because it's not true medical specialty. It's a branding tool and it is a group where anyone can be functionally, you know, certified. And it, if you take their courses and do whatever, but it's not a actual standard rigorous medical training. It's not an officially recognized medical training. Therefore, there are no guideline recommendations to include this into our CME. And actually the majority of medical specialties will not even acknowledge functional medicine, continuing medical education as credit, because it's not even considered a, something that can be used in continuing medical education for a board certified physician. Right. There's nothing stopping you from calling yourself a functional cardiologist or me as a functional, whatever I want to call myself, a functional memeologist of some sort. And, uh, right. you know, Kevin can call himself whatever. Kevin, why don't you tell us a little bit about the um, nutrition side of it? So where does functional nutrition, where did that come from? And what's the story about that? So the, the whole functional medicine kind of integrated functional medicine gets thrown together in nutrition. And so there's even a practice group of dietitians who call themselves dietitians in integrative and functional medicine. This sort of began with a guy who had a PhD in nutrition called his name is Jeff Bland. And so nutrition, I think, has a very uh, historically close association with uh, integrative functional medicine. Uh, some folks might know the term integrative medicine because it's sort of a rebranding of complementary and alternative medicine. We used to have a national institute that funded, at, at the NIH level, that funded studies for complementary medicine and provided education on it. And now it's called the National Center for Complementary Health. Which has nothing to do with functional medicine, by the way. So the NIH studies on complementary health are not functional medicine related. Yes, yes. But in nutrition, I guess the, the two are, are married together a bit more than it is in medicine. Medicine, you'll see people describing themselves as integrative medicine and then or as functional medicine, but often the two get lumped together in dietetics. And so for those who don't know, dietitians go to a degree that's accredited. You get what's called a didactic program in dietetics, and then you have to do a thousand hours of a clinical internship. As well, it's part clinical. You also do community public health type work and, and food service things at the same time. And then you have to pass a test and maintain the credential every five years. But there's not a formal specialization issue, which could be its own podcast, maybe for another group. But once you have your RD, uh, you just maintain it and you can get certificates and different things like there's certificates in weight management that are put out, but there's not like a track where you go and do a three-year fellowship. Yeah. So functional medicine is essentially just not an officially recognized specialty. So just to clarify for anyone listening, so whether you are seeing a physician who claims they are a functional medicine specialist or a nutritionist that says they are a dietitian says they are functional medicine. It is more of a branding tool with some kind of courses attached to it rather than an actual formal training. And I think it's important to set the stage and the groundwork with that before uh, we even get into the things we're going to debunk that of the misinformation that comes from this sphere, because it's important to understand that when we're talking about someone, you know, we're talking about functional medicine, people that claim functional medicine, we're not talking about an ABIM board certified hematologist or endocrinologist. Yeah. We're talking about someone that, by the way, that person, if they are a physician, they should be 
board certified in something, even if they are claiming that they're functional medicine. But I guess they some technically don't even have to be in certain states. You don't even need residency. You just need an intern year to practice. So neither here nor there, but what's most important is just lay the groundwork that it's not a formal medical recognized by any legitimate medical organizations. And for dietitians, though, I think it's important to say that they there are like standards of practice that have been set out from the specific practice groups that are interested in this kind of stuff. And so from within dietetics, there has been more of a push for this kind of work uh, and to sort of formalize gotcha. it. And so they they have what they they have a practice paper on this that they say the functional medicine principles are, and you'll see they're not really anything different than just a regular practitioner. They focus on patient-client-centered approaches. They acknowledge biochemical uniqueness of individuals. They seek balance between mind, body, and spirit. Acknowledge that all body systems are interconnected and influenced by physiological and or metabolic factors and identify health as positive vitality, which they have then different competencies set out. And it basically just focuses on, they, they say a lot of things over and over again about identifying the root causes of disease. <laughs> they love that phrase. Well, yeah. <laughs> and that's just kind of everywhere throughout this as though non-functional medicine people don't try and do that. They very much make it this dichotomy of like, oh, well, other people, conventional just treat symptoms. Yeah. It becomes ironic because like, this is also the group that hates vaccines the most, which is like, the most conventional medicine thing that's focused on prevention and the root cause. And <laughs> yeah. So there's this book, Unconventional Medicine, by uh, Chris Gresser. He was trying to promote his own functional medicine. And he's an acupuncturist, correct? He's an acupuncturist. He's a there licensed expert. So he claims to be a functional medicine expert and he's yes. an acupuncturist. Okay. So I guess someone on. comes in with a rock in their shoe. Conventional medicine would give them Tylenol to fix the symptoms of the pain from the rock in the shoe. The functional medicine doctor would figure out that the rock's in the shoe and take it out. I don't know about you, but that's uh, it's a little bit ridiculous considering family medicine, internal medicine, primary care doctors. We all want to get to the root cause. So th they already yes. start with this marketing us versus them type of BS. That's just, it drives me insane. And it drives me insane specifically because when I was in med school, I, I had guru attendings that were trying to get me into this. And they had me buy those books by Jeffrey Bland and Institute of Functional Medicine. I was, the textbook was reasonable, but it went into this the biochemistry or individual biochemistry and try to make it like there's a, some secret sauce. And I, that's a, that's such a good point. And I think that it's important to recognize, you know, not to gaslight anyone listening here who has had a shitty experience with yeah. traditional healthcare. Because um, I totally do empathize with that. I think I think all three of us that are sitting here right now have had numerous conversations about this. The traditional healthcare model is of course, broken and challenged and is fraught with plenty of issues. But the answer is not an alternative system in which made-up diagnoses are, are made and unnecessary testing, which can be harmful, is propagated. Um, that's, that's not the solution either. But I don't want anyone listening to think, you know, that if you have had an experience with a traditional healthcare provider who you haven't felt listened to, or you haven't felt like they've actually gotten to the root cause of your issue, I, I do sympathize and empathize with that and on many levels, because I know that that happens. And, and just to put, listen, uh, medicine, like any other profession, we're all humans and humans make mistakes. There's good doctors, there's bad doctors all over the spectrum. But I do want to say in general, I do believe this. And I think you'll agree with me, Spencer, that most doctors go into medicine in our generation to help people. It's not the money train. It was when we were like kids, when you thought of doctors, it's, you know, people graduate a lot of medical school debt. And so I I genuinely do believe that a majority of physicians go into medicine to help people. And I do believe that the current system, I just defend doctors a little bit, is that, you know, they're held by an RVU-based system where their time is limited. They have 15 minutes per patient, maybe max, with limited resources. Um, the money is not going straight to the physician's pockets. A lot of it's going through insurance and it's going through uh, hospital administrators and these large buy-ups of these big groups. So it's a complex, nuanced discussion, but I just want the listeners to know that all three of us empathize with the patient experience, especially if you've had a negative one in traditional medicine that's kind of sent you down the route of alternative medicine. These functional medicine, it's, it's arose because it's, people didn't get enough time with their 
primary care doctor. They kind of pushed him off. The primary care doctor had 40 patients to see. They got five minutes with them. They go and like, oh gosh, I need somebody to help me. I still feel sick. They just gave me some pill or whatever. And then they go see a functional medicine doctor who's, they paid cash by the way, but spent an hour with them and actually helped them with lifestyle, made them not feel so crappy. And all of a sudden it's like, yeah, this functional medicine doctor helped me. No, lifestyle medicine is absolutely evidence-based and what every doctor would like to do. It's just, we're confined to a certain system where we have to practice within. So it's, that's, that's also part of it. Yeah. I think, and acknowledging that we're not trying to gaslight anyone, like Coming from the field of nutrition, it's been decades and still to this day, extremely hard to uh, get doctors to refer to dietitians. And even when they do, it's not covered by insurance. There's an act before Congress right now to try and drastically expand the ability for insurance to reimburse on nutrition because it still only reimburses for dietitian services for those with type 2 diabetes and chronic kidney disease. So the insurance model keeps folks kind of stuck in a you know, you're trapped in a treatment approach and not uh, able to do it prevention quite as much. And all of that absolutely needs to be reformed. You should be able to, I personally think, you should be able to get referred to a dietitian because you have questions about eating because you're newly pregnant, or you just have general questions about eating, or you are pre-diabetes, or you have a family history of it, and just go talk and get some lifestyle counseling on diet and nutrition. And I think diet and nutrition ends up being a gateway drug for a lot of functional medicine practitioners because they say something reasonable about diet and then address it and gain a lot of trust with the patients. And then it doesn't matter whether what they say is evidence-based or not, it then creates that trust, which allows them to sell a lot of tests and supplements and other things that are not evidence-backed. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. So everyone listening knows we have great episode coming up with a friend of mine, Dr. David Noonan. He's from Oxford Center of Evidence-Based Medicine. And we're going to be talking about over-testing, over-diagnosis, and the harm that comes with that as well. So stay tuned because sometimes patients are led to believe that more testing is better. And we have a lot of data to show that that is not quite the case. And so that will be coming up with David Noonan in a few episodes. So stay tuned for that. But Okay, so now that we have it at least strained out, everyone knows what kind of kind of has an idea of what this mysterious functional medicine is. Um, we all, we all here acknowledge the limitations of traditional medicine. I do want to start off also by saying that I agree with Kevin and that the gateway to functional medicine oftentimes being um, this very elusive and kind of enticing area to get your health care and does start with nutrition. The irony of this is that whereas functional medicine people say that we don't get to the root cause, me as a cardiologist who is incredibly evidence-based and views our guidelines as very well done and synthesizing multiple levels of evidence Every single cardiovascular disease guideline, whether it is hypertension, whether it is our cholesterol guidelines, whether it is our primary prevention guidelines, whether it is congenital heart disease guidelines, whether it is our atrial fibrillation or arrhythmia guidelines, always recommends lifestyle change first. And this is a comprehensive lifestyle change in our guidelines, pages and pages and research and research on this recommending dietary change. Uh, sleep uh, improvement in sleep, improvement in exercise, smoking cessation. So. Lifestyle is important in traditional allopathic and osteopathic medicine as well. Clearly, you're a functional cardiologist. Yeah. <laughs> He's kidding. You're missing out on some branding there that can make you a lot more money. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, like the AHA, ACC, ASPC, I mean, every single cardiovascular organization we have recommends these lifestyle changes for cardiology. So I do think it is interesting that they pit against it, but I do think it comes down to a function of time. There's something really ironic there, though you're in cardiology where there's way more nutrition data. And so a lot yeah. of other guidelines don't, they might passingly address diet and lifestyle, but there's just not enough of an evidence base to really inform super specific medical nutrition interventions. 
I would actually say that they do actually. So the American, uh, the endocrinology um, nutrition guidelines are, are similar to, so the American endocrinology guidelines are similar to cardiology and the um, American Cancer Society guidelines are also similar to the cardiology nutrition guidelines. But derm, psych, pain, a lot of the stuff that you're seeing folks reach out to functional medicine people for, there is not nutrition, there's not a robust enough evidence base. Yes. And so that's kind of ironic because functional medicine people will sell it. Oh, I'm only evidence-based or whatever. And the conventional medicine's ignoring you. But it's not conventional medicine ignoring you so much as that we actually don't fund science and research well enough in America to have the research base to make really strong guidelines apart from just sort of general nutrition stuff. And so I, again, I would love insurance to be able to reimburse for just anybody to see a dietitian to talk about stuff, but you can't have it both ways. Conventional medicine doesn't just ignore nutrition. There's often a a lack of really strong evidence to inform anything. And then you get folks going off to functional medicine practitioners who swear up and down that their stuff is based off evidence. It's like, well, if we don't even fund the good research anyway, how can you sell yourself as an evidence-based practitioner? Exactly. We rely on anecdotes. This, we cured this kid's autism. We we fix this person's whatever. I mean, just, and it's just case studies. And what's also heartbreaking and heart-wrenching, and I know Spencer, you've gotten tons of these messages as well on social media every time you bring this up, which I have as well. Functional medicine often happens to take advantage and prey on the patients who are most desperate looking for help and hope because they either cannot get a diagnosis from the in, through traditional medicine or maybe because they have a nuanced or very difficult to understand disease process. And to me, the best thing we can do as a physician is say, I don't know, we'll keep looking, we'll just keep working with you and trying to figure it out. The answer is not making up diagnoses and making up treatments for things that are not real. So speaking of that, let's start on some of the diagnoses that and some of these lab tests and things. And there's so much I have to ask both Spencer and Kevin about these topics that functional medicine has put out there that everyone listening is going to say they've heard before. So I want to start with you, Spencer. So starting with one of the most popular functional medicine diagnoses, please tell everyone about the made-up diagnosis that is adrenal fatigue. Yeah, it's my favorite one. And again, this is because I actually, during medical school, went down this route of like, okay, these clearly these gurus that I'm listening to know something that my teachers don't. And I'm going to be the smartest because I'm going to know all this stuff. So I went down this whole route. The idea is that people are, are tired and sick because we're stressed out all the time. And our adrenal glands, which uh, produce cortisol, one of those stress hormones, as people say, as we get so stressed, the adrenal glands just burn out. They stop making, producing enough cortisol. They make too much at one point because we're stressed, and then we stop making it. The, the adrenal glands burn out, and then that's why we're so sick and tired. And this was kind of made popular in the late uh, 90s by, I believe, a chiropractor, Wilson, I believe it was. And the, the symptoms are vague. The, the, the way they describe the symptoms are pretty much how most people feel from just any type of crappy lifestyle, lack of sleep, just stress, working having kids, whatever. Living through a pandemic, you know. <laughs> yeah, just any type any type of just fatigue, fog, any symptoms you can think of, they threw it on there. And so people are like, hey, that's, that's me because everybody kind of feels this way at some point during the year. And the idea of, oh, like this, the, the made up pathophysiology yeah. of it really sounds, this is the difference. This is why this podcast to me is so important because dif differentiating pseudoscience between that versus science is, can be difficult because pseudoscience can sound so scientific, like the actual mechanism by which they say adrenal fatigue that Spencer just described the way they say it exists sounds totally plausible until you actually go through residency training and fellowship. And you realize that if someone's adrenal glands just crapped out from being stressed, you would have something severe called Addison's disease. Yeah. <laughs> so if you don't mind explaining what, what all the different endocrine nonsense is in this area. Yeah, so what the, the true pathophysiology or pathology would be uh, adrenal insufficiency, where you're, if, if you don't create cortisol, you can die. You, you can die. Your blood pressure goes down, everything, you, you shut down. And it's extremely dangerous. And in fact, when we post about this on our Instagrams, there will be people that have uh, adrenal insufficiency from usually Addison's, what they'll come in. Addison's is an autoimmune disease where their own body attacks their adrenal glands. And so they, they, they literally can't produce cortisol anymore. There's other adrenal insufficiencies. You can get a, a pituitary or hypothalamic issues where it's not 
sending the messenger, the adrenal cortocotropic hormone, ACTH, uh, as well. Or if you're taking steroids, this is actually probably the most common thing. We, you know, let's say ortho or whoever is giving steroids or people that come in with like chronic asthma, they're getting a lot of prednisone. And if they get, they're on a, a long dose of it and then they abruptly stop. When you get outside a hormone, it shuts down your own hormone production. So if you stopped abruptly, your adrenal glands have to make up for it and start producing it. But if, if you're in trouble, it can be dangerous. So that's adrenal insufficiency. And so people come onto our Instagram and be like, I have that. These adrenal fatigue people drive me nuts. So what ends up happening is if you get these adrenal fatigue people, there's a test called an ACTH stim test where you can see, you can give them this ACTH, this messenger from your pituitary gland to see if it will make your adrenal glands make enough cortisol. And it's, it's never an issue. The, the adrenal glands work. Like I don't, it's never been an issue. So recently they've tried to change their definitions. Well, your adrenal glands don't actually fatigue. There's this dysfunction between your brain and your adrenal glands. Well, Either way, these practitioners try to sell you all sorts of supplements to try to stimulate or, or heal. They'll, they'll use that word often, heal your adrenal glands and, and help you out. Of course, they, a lot of times they sell these uh, supplements straight from their, their office and they'll dispense them or they'll, they'll have a little link that you can buy and they'll get a kickback from it, of course. And these are pretty cheap supplements if you can go online and buy them yourself but through their store it's always like marked up 20 times or whatever and these uh you know these uh, supplements work in different ways sometimes they allegedly increase your cortisol and all this different stuff but they, they don't do anything it's it's just a ploy to make you feel like you're sick make up some bogus pathophysiology when there's are actual people with adrenal insufficiency out there like in trouble and then to you know give you lifestyle stuff that does actually work. The, the same lifestyle stuff that we say, like, hey, you're not sleeping that much. You're, you're watching Netflix all night and on your phone and your computer. Maybe not do that. Maybe get your circadian rhythm like in line and actually get the seven or eight hours of restful sleep. Maybe instead of uh, drinking coffee all day and, and uh, eating whatever highly processed diet and not exercise, maybe like, you know, I don't know, have a, have a healthful lifestyle. And then all of a sudden they feel good. And they're like, see this, this uh, functional doctor, whoever fixed me. And it wasn't the supplements though. And your adrenal glands weren't burned out. It was simply the lifestyle causing it. And I would say that that's a, that's a best case scenario yeah. is when it turns out that they just change their lifestyle, listen to this functional medicine provider and they get better. Um, and I know you've seen this, which I've seen many a times is the far more dangerous worst case scenario, which is a patient you get who has symptoms of say fatigue, symptoms of they're not feeling well, they're just feeling out of it. And they get slapped with this diagnosis of adrenal fatigue that is not real from their functional medicine chiropractor or whatever physician. And it turns out then they see me and I do an echo on them and their RVSP on their right ventricle is, you know, 83 and they have severe uh, pulmonary hypertension group three from severe untreated sleep apnea. Yep. And you're like, well, that's why you're fatigued. And those made up adrenal supplements will not fix your sleep apnea. We have various other treatments for that. Probably the most common one I see sometimes anemia, but or, uh, or hypothyroidism. So if you could just, before we move on to some of the other testing, if you could just touch on, cause I know as a primary care physician, especially you must get so much of this. What are the other kind of ways in which functional medicine claims to do all this hormone optimization and all of these things with hormones in general, even with thyroid, they, they're treating, you know, normal thyroid levels and all these various other things that are not within the realm of actual evidence-based medicine. Some of them listen to symptoms and be like, you have adrenal fatigue. Other, others will actually do a diurnal cortisol test and you do about four or so uh, salivary cortisol samples during the day. And it can show like in the morning, your cortisol is supposed to be higher. And then throughout the day, it kind of gets lower and lower while you go to sleep. And then in the middle, right before you wake up again, it spikes again. So, you know, they do these uh, salivary cortisol tests, but like, you know, they're not really standardized. The only time salivary cortisol is, is uh, useful is really to rule out Cushing's. You do a, a, a nighttime salivary cortisol and you can see Cushing's, that's too high of cortisol. But 
Otherwise, they're just kind of checking these diurnal cortisols. And I, I've actually, I got three at the same time. This is during residency. I'm like, okay, I'm kind of skeptical of this now. I think they're kind of full of it. As I started to learn, I got three of the same diurnal cortisol tests from different um, manufacturers, different labs, spitting in all these tubes. And my results kind of came back all over the place to the point where it's like, they're making all these crazy diagnoses off of non-standardized tests to call you have some stage of adrenal fatigue. And my, all of mine came back in different stages of adrenal fatigue. I had no symptoms I, I was, other than lack of sleep because we're in residency, but that's one way. So they give you these tests to, to pathologize or whatever, make you feel like you have some, you're broken, which you're not. And again, some people are, of course, they come in with <laughs> sleep apnea and heart failure and whatever like that. But you know, a lot of times it's just lifestyle related. The other way is over testing on thyroid. And this is near and dear to my heart because I have Hashimoto's thyroiditis. I have full-blown overt hypothyroidism where I have to take a whopping dose of Synthroid. And so what they'll do is they'll just keep testing them. They'll, the patient will come in and be like, it's my thyroid. And you know, you, you know, conventional medicine, we're, we're used to going, no, your numbers are normal, get out of here. So oftentimes they'll do extra testing. They'll check, check reverse T3, they'll check free T3, free T4, TSH, and it'll do it multiple times with thyroid antibodies. And if you test it so many different times, at some point you may get an out of range result and they'll just automatically label them with hypothyroidism, put them on whatever, whether it's Synthroid or Armor or Cytomel or a combination of all of it. And now these people are labeled as hypothyroidism when they didn't necessarily have it. You just had to actually do the right tests, first of all, number one. And number two, actually talk to the patient and actually figure out, instead of throwing hormones at them, figure out the root cause, which is ironic because that's their whole, their, their whole thing. They want to find the root cause, except oftentimes the root cause is making up something and selling them supplements and giving them unneeded uh, drugs. This is to me why I cannot believe that this quote unquote, area of medicine is allowed to exist, considering the amount of research and the amount of, of intentional thought and deliberate thinking that goes into guidelines, which essentially instruct and standardize care for us to treat patients, right? So whenever we look at something, you have a lab value, of course, it's just one biomarker, one lab value. But if you have a lab value for a TSH and a T3, and within the endocrinology guidelines, if there's no recommendation when you are within that lab value to treat for uh, thyroid disease, the fact that people are going outside of the most robust levels of evidence and practicing completely on their own is so dangerous to me because I have seen patients on the other end of this who have been started on armor, who by a functional medicine practitioner who did not have true hypothyroidism and end up seeing me because they have now new onset atrial flutter or atrial tachycardia from being on a super high dose of armor thyroid. And so oh, it is so dangerous. That is why I, I know I say that, listen, guidelines are not perfect, but they're constantly evolving and they are the best we have to standardize care. And these organizations, this IFM or whatever, they don't follow our medical guidelines. I personally, as a board certified internist who then did cardiology fellowship, I stick to cardiology. And if I have a patient who needs like an ACTH test, guess who I'm not going to have do it? Me. I'm going to send them to endocrinologist who's an expert like Spencer's brother, who's an expert in hormones and all these things. So I find that incredibly challenging. So I want you both to weigh in on this. Uh, essentially, I got a list of, um, in an article from Will Cole, he's a very well-known chiropractor, functional medicine pr provider. And he has this article. I actually can't wait to hear David Noonan's take on this. He has this article about all of the lab tests that your primary care doctor is not providing for you. I only spent three years doing primary care during my medicine residency for one week a month during our continuity clinic at Temple, but Spencer trained in primary care. He is a family medicine physician. So Spencer, you need to explain why a family medicine physician would not be ordering all of these tests. Wait, can I, can I jump in and say one thing though, like overarching, yeah. the FDA does not necessarily regulate most tests in a way that ensures that they are used for some appropriate indicated purpose. 
They regulate it in the sense that you get the same answer twice. So even if you get the same wrong answer twice, that's how things are regulated in America. It is like, that's why you're seeing this explosion of tests like Everly Well and Target and things like that. They're selling you tests for purpose. Theranos. <laughs> well, not quite that, but... Um, but there, there, yeah, yeah, there's lots of, there's lots of tests that you can buy now. And the purpose of them is to create the illusion of a problem or something to fix. And that's why many of them ultimately are not, they're never intended to be diagnostic and they give you feedback that you can theoretically act on whether or not it's indicated. And that leads to the ability to sell people stuff. And so, but I think it's really important folks to come in. We don't live in a, in a society that says like the FDA approves a test and says, it can be only used in this instance for this diagnostic purpose. Well, in medicine, in medicine, we do have that with regards to CMS. For sure. So with regards to what is um, a CMS, you know, CMS won't approve you ordering a hemoglobin A1C for someone if you're not like put the correct diagnostic code on there. You know what I mean? But when it comes to out of pocket, like in kind of just the everyday, if you want to buy a lab test, there's not really, yeah. you can just get it whether, and it can be advertised to you as like and sold as, oh, it's used for this purpose. But right. it, it might not be valid to actually do that. And you can get some deep. of these tests on Wilco's list that I'm going to read to you guys. I've never even heard of in my life. Okay. Yeah. So that, I just, I felt like that was an important thing. Absolutely. Like, David Noonan was going to probably do a great job better than I could say, but he'll probably talk about retest probabilities. Like, exactly. Like literally my day, my day to day. Like every calculation I make for every cardiology patient is about pretest probability because I'm not going to send someone for a nuclear stress test or a, yep. a yep. CT or anything unless the pretest probability is justified in sending them. Anyway, and then what are you going to do with the answer? What are you going to do with the result? Is it actually does it change clinical management exactly? So now let's talk about these labs. I've literally never heard of these, but these are what Will Cole says that your PCP, Will Cole, the chiropractor, functional medicine guru, says your PCP should be ordering them. They don't. Okay. 24 hour adrenal stress index. No. Again, it's it's the diurnal cortisol probably test. Okay. Can, there's multiple ways to do it. Some of them do urine, 24 hour urine, then they do the spit multiple times. I've never heard of this. Okay. A expanded thyroid panel. I get a TSH and a T3, T4, but what are these expanded thyroid panels? This is what you were talking about before. They're just like these kind of wacky. Yeah. They might be thrown in there, reverse T3, thyroid antibodies. And if you're looking for a Hashimoto's or something like that, but again, like your antibodies could be elevated and have normal, you could be used thyroid and it's just like, okay, so now what do we do? Monitor you? Exactly. Clinical utility is most important part. Okay. This one made me laugh. I've never heard of this. Gut permeability labs, including zonulin and occludin, actomyosin antibodies, and um, lipopolysaccharides like LPS. Yeah. I've never, I didn't even know you could test that. You can. <laughs> yeah. So Austin will be able to talk about this. And, and Kevin looks like he probably wants to chat about the idea that you can have gut permeability. And, and, and so this, this shows, these are ways to maybe measure the amount of permeability. But again, whether these are standardized or validated to be able to do something about and then change progression of disease state. Uh, I, I, it's measuring things that are, are theoretically implicated in disease, mm -hmm. but are not like, we don't even know if these things are, are causal factors in disease. So like yeah. leaky gut or like what is called scientifically gut permeability is often seen, particularly in the developing world where you have enteric enteropathy and you can give different sugars that are absorbed differently and look at their ratios to kind of test the leakiness as a functional test that's used in research environments, but it's not diagnostic, it's not clinically validated. And so they're then measuring the proteins that are theoretically involved in this process at the level of the gut or LPS, which is like a bacterial metabolite. And then assuming that these are clinically meaningful in the diagnostic process and they have no cutoff ranges that have ever been established. You know, you would need large population studies like what we have for Framingham and whatnot to actually validate, okay, are these associated with disease? Do they have good predictive and diagnostic capacity? And then even then you have to ask, okay, if we act upon them, do lowering them do anything? And so this is, you have a whole history of doing this for things like LDL and blood pressure. If anything, you, you can measure like you mentioned zonulin, which controls how uh, the tight junctions in the gut and the enterocytes, so that lining of cells um, in the gut 
that help to absorb nutrients, how with the distance between them. And so we're just figuring out about zonulin biology, but measuring the levels of it in your blood is not really validated to even say what's going on in your gut and to say that that's going to tell anything about the quote unquote leakiness of it, let alone whether the leakiness is causing, you know, leakiness, I'm saying in quotes for folks, because we have no idea if that's a cause or a consequence of disease or has any role in the pathophysiology. Folks are truly taking something that has like a kernel of research and something very, very, very basic, and then acting like it's been clinically validated and selling it as such. Well, uh, functional medicine is the pioneer of emphasizing mechanisms over outcomes, hypotheses and anecdotes over outcomes. Truly. And so when you look at the evidence pyramid, I mean, we've focus on randomized controlled trials, well-designed cohorts. There's is upside down. Truly flips it upside down. Yeah, because in the history of medicine and nutrition, you look at mechanisms and the amount of times we've been wrong based off mechanism oh. is crazy. And the amount of medications we have that work really well that we don't know the mechanism of, even metformin for type 2 diabetes. Like we know it suppresses hepatic glucose output, but how it does that, we have no idea. Oh no, the best example is like SGLT2 inhibitors. We have no clue how they work, but for some reason, they are literally just reducing cardiovascular mortality, improving heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, improving patients with kidney disease. And we still don't even have the mechanism down, but guess what we do have is the hard outcomes. Yeah, and so uh, the, the best example of this is probably the antioxidant and oxidant theory of aging, where in the 90s, it was all the rage that oxidative stress caused every disease. And then we kicked up, vitamin C, vitamin E, beta carotene, all of these trials, and then quickly learned that they didn't do anything for the average person. They caused harm in a lot of folks because, you know, you're just in blanket impairing immune system function in many ways that turned out to be more negative than positive, like in smokers, for example, beta carotene seemed to have So in the 90s, it was the thing though, like it sounded so rational you have excessive oxidative stress, causing all this damage, causes cancer, causes heart disease. And then you actually get the clinical trials to test this. And they're by no means perfect, but they also didn't provide any support that just taking and acting upon this. That doesn't mean that oxidative stress isn't important. It just means that knowing even how something works and how disease progresses doesn't mean you know whether what the best therapy is for that, that there's not going to be off-target impacts of the therapies that you think work. And so the the hubris that comes in this of kind of having this big understanding or even guess at a pathophysiology and that you can determine what would be clinically meaningful to lower, you know, heart disease and kind of crazy. A lot of this stuff is truly like what I do on a day-to-day basis, ground zero. I come to my lab meeting and I throw out a random hypothesis. And then, you know, we go and test in an animal model and cells, whether that would work. And then maybe in 10 years, that'll get to something clinical if I'm super lucky. But that's that's not what these folks are doing. They're coming up with hypotheses. And then- exactly. And that's the problem with the functional medicine is where, you know, people sometimes kind of critique uh, traditional medicine as this area that, you know, we just start pushing drugs and pushing, et cetera, and we're testing on people. But the truth is, is that they, that functional medicine, it's like they're actually skipping all of the robust randomized controlled trials and all of the research to figure out if whether or not they're doing is providing more benefits than harms. And they're skipping all of that. And the their customers are the trial participants. Mm-hmm. I mean, literally, they are being tried in these functional medicine hypotheses. And you often can see harm, obviously. So one of the biggest harms too is when true diagnoses are missed. Because I always say, even if adrenal fatigue, something like that, for example, is not real, your symptoms are real. So we need to figure out what's going on with your symptoms, whether it's an underlying organic, you know, disease of sleep apnea or true hypothyroidism or kidney disease or heart disease or something else versus, you know, depression or anxiety or other psychological issues that kind of get brushed under the rug when we really do have great guideline directed therapies for all of those. So some of the other tests I want to get to some comments on some he mentions are not totally unreasonable, but I have to say that that clinically there should be some, this shouldn't be routinely screened. We don't recommend routinely screening for estrogen, progesterone, testosterone at all. And he recommends that routinely that should be clinically indicated a high-rise CRP, which is nonspecific homocysteine. Oh Lord. I mean, 
there's just very folks in this space love methylation and it's folate. unbelievable you look at the original jeff bland stuff and he talks about like a major assessment status thing to look at as whether the folate cycle is disrupted they recommend the 23 me. they recommend 23 he will cole recommends 23 me genetic testing to look for methylation impairment yes it is is wild. If you're truly looking for a genetic issue, uh, I wouldn't recommend that as as a diagnostic. If you're truly looking for a genetic issue, you should be referred to a geneticist by a physician that is concerned that you have a genetic issue. Yeah. Yeah, I don't I don't really get it. I, I did my PhD work in choline, which is a major methyl donor and interacts with folate metabolism quite a bit. And, you know, I talked with all the folate people of like, do you know why there's this obsession? Like, I mean, I look at MTHFR variants in post-hoc analyses of trials that I've done and whatnot just to see how it affects the metabolism. But it, it's there's the data that's out there actually showing that these things are clinically meaningful in a way. Like you know, at a population level, having the MTHFR C677T variant, will in, which they all test for, will increase like risk of neural tube defects and whatnot and homocysteine. And the medical nutrition therapy for that is making sure there's adequate folic acid in the diet. But they Which is what we recommend for everyone. Yeah, which is what we recommend for everyone. And the hilarious thing is you come to these functional medicine tests and that's almost too establishment-y. So they've come up with why folic acid is a bad thing if you have that variant. And that other really expensive folates that also happen to be much less stable are somehow better. And it's there's no rhyme or reason or rationale for it. And it's just a huge marketplace. Very bizarre. The only clinical indication for measuring homocysteine is patients with suspected homocysteinuria. That's it. That's um, in, in, in patients with suspected homocysteinuria and in first degree relatives of patients with homocysteinuria. Even patients with cardiovascular disease, venous thromboembolism, interventions to lower homocysteine have not been shown to prevent cardiovascular disease or VT. So we don't measure it. And so it's very, very rare to have an issue with this. And that's why it's just, it's another one of their tests on this list of wild tests they have. And then the other ones, actually, Kevin, if you can touch on one of the big, most popular ones are the food sensitivity tests. Please explain to everyone because food sensitivity tests have blown up. They really have. Yeah. I mean, let me just start off with there is no, and this is a huge issue in nutrition generally, there is no validated diagnostic test for a food sensitivity. There is a very, like food allergies, there's not even a single diagnostic test there either. It's looking across biochemical data, clinical symptoms, and challenge, blinded challenges, and all sorts of like, you know, allergy is its own specialty for sure. And the idea that you can just measure uh, something in the blood and then tell food sensitivities is kind of wild. But as I said before, it is something that generates a problem that you can then sell things to fix, even though it wasn't a problem at baseline. And this isn't to gaslight folks that food sensitivities are not real but a, a real clinical dietitian who's interested in this stuff will or interested in helping patients with this does uh, you know really good food tracking and journaling and trialing different elimination diets to identify what might help them identify a trigger food for example but the food sensitivity test what the most of the clinical ones doing like the ones you can buy at Target and stuff now they are measuring total immunoglobulins or IgGs, which are just antibodies in the blood that are made in, in response to just the normal, we eat food and we have a system in our gut and that those immune cells recognize food proteins. And so you you want that, you want the immune system to, just, to see the food and the proteins that are breaking and say, that's normal, that's okay, that's not foreign. And to our knowledge, there's not a clear pathophysiology to food sensitivity. We still don't really understand it necessarily, but folks have asserted that there is, this is all antibody-based. And so food allergy is antibody-based. We use IgGs, but we're measuring Ig, or IgEs. We're measuring IgGs now in these food sensitivity tests to specific foods, and you get these reports back. And it's hilarious kind of working with patients because they're like, yeah, I did one of these. And, you know, all the foods that are red, aka bad, are all the things I eat normally all the time. And all the foods that are green are things that I've never eaten, which is exactly the biology of IgG. You're exposed to a food and you make IgGs in response to them. And you kind of get this bizarre thing where you'll have like IgGs to like 
you know, a food allergy to dairy, it's because you have an allergy to a casein protein or something. But the food sensitivities will say you're allergic, you're sensitive to skim milk, but not cottage cheese, but a little bit to uh, cheddar. I mean, it's just kind of, it's a little wild. You get this massive list and it seems very actionable, but it's really just measuring whether you've eaten something. How are they allowed to do this though? Because I, I want the same, the, I get the same patients and I always tell them, no, this is BS. But why are these companies allowed to promote this? I have no idea. This makes no sense because I, I see the I see the ads online. It's really scary, and I've had a lot of sad clinical interactions. I did my clinical training at the National Institute of Health Clinical Center, where everyone's on a clinical trial. And you know, we talk about side effects of this, Danielle. You mentioned missing diagnoses, but the other really sad part of this is just the amount of stress it creates on folks. I had a patient who spent two years buying a separate set of groceries for their child because a functional practitioner sold them. IgG-based food sensitivity tests. Totally. And the person, the, the child had, was being studied for just like very extreme behavioral things. And the mom, when I, when I told her, I was like, I'm sorry, like, uh, there's just really not, this is not diagnostic. There's not evidence to support that you have to be doing this. She just like collapsed crying. It had caused her so much stress. She was worried she was giving her kid nutrient deficiencies because they were feeding such a limited diet. And it was all based off of a one-time test that the sad, the really predatory part of this is you don't get a negative food sensitivity. There is never a time it comes back and says, you're all, and it's because you've always eaten food recently and your immune system has right. always sensed it. So it's actually the perfect test to scam people because you never get a negative result. Any test where you've always positive for something is not a diagnostic test. And for anyone that isn't in medicine or doesn't remember the difference between like IgG antibodies versus IgA versus IgE versus IgM. So IgG is a memory antibody naturally produced when we eat foods, right? So this is a marker of tolerance and not intolerance or sensitivity. It's just a marker of tolerance. So that's why food sensitivity tests have never been validated ever. There's no evidence showing that food sensitivity tests diagnose anything and they haven't demonstrated any important basic functions like providing the same result in the same person with or without a different, uh, with a condition over repeatedly over time. So they have never been validated and it is truly a marketed ploy and technique. And I think that Kevin stated a really important point here that is missing diagnoses because of functional medicine can be harmful, but also these overdiagnoses can also be harmful be due to wasted time, wasted money, and increased stress be for all these new, newly added foods that people think they need to avoid. That being said, true celiac disease is an actual food insensitivity that is an actual disease, yeah. which is diagnosed differently. But the IgG food tests you're having never been validated. They are a sign of tolerance. They are not a sign of intolerance. And the initial screen for celiac is measuring an IgA tissue transportaminase. So it's an even just a different class of antibody that in and of itself is not diagnostic. You still need to go and get a biopsy done when you're still eating gluten to actually see the damage and the villus blunting that occurs. And so IgG, um, you know, it, it's really sad that this has taken off in this way. And I think it's important to call out, you know, with all of the framing that is done of us versus them, you know, and, and that doctors are just in this for the money and whatnot. I can't tell you how much more money I would make if I sold this kind of stuff. Whether you get a kickback or whatever from the company matters less. It also creates problems that then keeps patients with you for longer. And I have definitely lost patients by saying, hey, I can walk you through this test and the results because they'll have gotten it beforehand. But I, I really can't ethically tell you to act on any of this because it is not something that's validated and it's just measuring what you've eaten recently. And I can make a lot of money by selling these things and keeping people hooked as a patient for the next six months as we do trial elimination diets and all sorts of stuff. But I'm actively, because I'm, I think most practitioners are ethical, we're not selling these things and we're not advertising this as a service. And if you want to come to me, you know, we have to do some sort of full, real assessment. And I would, I would absolutely love to have a single one-time test that could be diagnostic and point me in the direction. Every single practitioner would to identify food sensitivity, but we're not selling these things because they're not validated. And, and they're not even, the physiological theory isn't even there to say that this would be a more 
Well said. Um, Spencer, next on to you is mold toxicity real. This is another all-time favorite of, uh, of functional medicine. I mean, there's certainly mold out there and it's it's possible you can have black mold. I had uh, some mold in my, uh, I, I own this real piece of crap uh, condo in college. It was horrible. And there was some mold and I was like, every time I'd cough. So that, that can happen. You can have sensitivity from breathing in and, and coughing and all this type of stuff, but it seems to be one of these overdiagnosed things. In fact, there's this uh, doctor in California that I, I always get messages about because they're like, this doctor says I can't lose weight because of mold and because it, uh, it, it interferes with leptin. And I'm like, dude, it's, I can promise you that the mold is not stopping you from losing weight. And they're like, no, she cited a study that it showed that it interfered with leptin. And I'm like, I, no, I, I, I saw the study. She doesn't understand how to even interpret the study. It had nothing to do with anything. So mold, there, there, there is mold out there. It can cause issues, but they are over-diagnosing this and, and just uh, saying it's related to pretty much everything. I totally agree. And uh, the science-based medicine, which uh, anyone who follows me knows that I love Stephen Novella, Dave Gorski, they do a great job. They have a great article on is mold toxicity a real problem? And it is unbelievable because as someone, again, who I mentioned, I trained, I have to do, had to do three years of internal medicine before cardiology fellowship and take the boards in internal medicine before cardiology training. You know, I do an infectious disease rotation and spent time with some of the top infectious disease physicians in the country that were at Temple. And unbelievable to me when I graduate my training past my IM boards, and all of a sudden I'm hearing online about this like epidemic of mold toxicity that all these people are getting diagnosed from functional medicine. And I'm like, how is this possible that I was never trained on this? And then I find out that it is unfortunately a something that's been kind of propagated by the functional medicine and integrated medicine community. So there's obviously, like Spencer said, there's true mold issues that can happen with yeah. asthma and with like certain cough. conditions. I was just kind of coughing and rhinitis. Right. Um, but uh, so like in damp areas, things like that with certain health effects and asthma and um, respiratory related conditions. But that is certainly far more rare than the actual level of diagnosis through the, the functional medicine community. If you're at a point where you're being told that you have mold toxicity, you should be seeing a board certified pulmonologist. Yeah. That's the kind of wild part of this. I've, I've had patients that talk about their mold and the yeast that's in their gut and all this kind of like just general fungi stuff. And yeah, I'm like, okay, you should go get some antimycotics from uh, an actual doctor that is trained in treating mold, not coming to me for a, a low carb, low sugar diet, because you've been told that's feeding the, the fungus in your body. We have relatively simple fixes. We have ways to treat mold, but that is never the answer for the sort of epidemic mold and endemic mold that we have. It's this very complicated protocol that involves measuring things. They try and measure leptin, they try and measure thyroid hormones regularly and try and link it to the mold, but there's no clear way to even do that. And so it is, again, another instance where people create a problem and then conveniently have these very complex and expensive, you know, therapeutic approaches to it. I'm actually finding that no wonder why this wasn't in my uh, internal medicine board certified training uh, when I was in residency, because uh, I'm, I'm reading now on science-based medicine, some of the treatments for mold that functional medicine recommends are uh, things like ozone therapy and uh, stem cells. These are those nonspecific kind of made-up therapies that are based on mechanisms, hypotheses, anecdotes that people can charge quite a lot for and profit a lot, and they may not be necessarily helping any sort of problem. And the, the therapies, they say, the interesting thing to me is always like, what is stopping, if this is all really true, what is stopping pharma from coming in? And, you know, actually, if it, if it was real, they would have a drug to sell for it and make money off of it Absolutely. too. Absolutely. And that's the thing is that uh, the reason I always say that I say, as soon as there becomes enough evidence, actually fish oil is one of the best ones. As soon, fish oil has failed trial after trial after trial for cardiovascular benefit for a lifetime. Every pharmaceutical, like in Mean Girls, where they're like, stop trying to make, make fetch happen. It's like literally the way that it's been about fish oil. Like we're literally like how many more pharmaceutical companies are going to try to 
do a trial, a robust trial to see if fish oil helps cardiovascular endpoints. It wasn't until the reduced trial that high dose CPA showed some cardiovascular risk reduction in certain patient groups. But other than that, it's been, you know, quite unexciting. I always say as soon as something has enough data for it, it will, a pharmaceutical company will, will jump on it. And if they thought ozone therapy or stem cells were powerful for mold, I, I think they would jump on it. But the irony is that we're all pharma deals. We're, we're, we're pushing for big pharma, right? We're, we're just in the po- big pharma's in our pockets. Spencer, Spencer's joking in case you don't get the sarcasm. No, it's, it's sarcasm. I was going to na- make another joke, but that's all right. Uh, f- um, but anyway, it's a joke. We're like, yeah, they, they call us big pharma shows. And, but then they sell a bunch of supplements and their books and their secrets that nobody wants to know. I, I've taken marketing courses. I understand all the tricks in the book. They are trying to do this us versus them, trying to make it seem like they have something special. They're actually not the ones doing the research. They're, they're literally not the researchers. They're not in, they're not doing in, publishing any of the studies. They're just making up stuff and then selling you supplements that they make money on. And the tests, you can make money off the tests, ironically, that are also dubious. Hey, actually, can you explain that? Because I don't know how that works. How do they make money off the tests? This yeah, not more kickbacks. Wow. So you could probably tell I love talking with Spencer and Kevin. So we are pushing pause on this conversation until next week. You are not going to want to miss our reactions and reviews to the ridiculous products on Mark Hyman's website and our advice on how to tell what is fact versus fiction when scrolling social media. We also discussed the sneaky marketing tactics of functional medicine practitioners, and trust me, you will be shocked. Make sure to follow Kevin Klatt at KCKLATT and Spencer Nadalski at Dr. Nadalski for more evidence-based information and for some hilarious memes. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. I would love to keep bringing you all the latest health and wellness information and misinformation to debunk. So please do me a quick favor and leave a five-star rating review and share with a friend. Make sure to leave a comment about which wellness fad you'd like to debunk next, and I'll get to the bottom of it. Follow me on Instagram at MD and our podcast page at Wellness Fact Versus Fiction, and be sure to tune in next week.